1: Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today is part two in our series on Matt Rutherford and the first solo nonstop circumnavigation of the Americas. Last time we left Rutherford, aboard his 40-year-old sailboat, the St. Brendan, in the Beaufort Sea as he emerged out of the Northwest Passage. Something I never mentioned last time, but by accomplishing this, Rutherford broke the record for sailing the smallest boat through the Northwest Passage, a record he holds to this day. That aside, two notes for today. First, you can see a map of Rutherford's route on our website, ExplorersPodcast.com. Second, today we will wrap up the story of Rutherford's remarkable voyage. But this series is not done, and that is because I conducted an extensive interview with Matt Rutherford, and that will be the third and final episode in this series. That is it for notes, so let's go. The date was September 16, 2011. Matt Rutherford sailed the St. Brendan out of the passage and into the Beaufort Sea. It had taken him 99 days to reach this point. He was through the Northwest Passage and headed west along the northern coast of the Yukon and Alaska. The plan was to sail through the Bering Strait, meaning between Alaska and Russia, and then go all the way to the tip of South America and round Cape Horn. He would then head north up to the United States and home. What Rutherford had done was remarkable. He had endured a difficult journey, but he was still only a third of the way through his voyage. He still had nearly 20,000 miles to go. The good part was that Rutherford knew that the Northwest Passage would be the most difficult part of the journey. This was because of the ice, which required him to be constantly attentive to his surroundings. And while Rutherford had made it through the passage, there were still lots of challenges ahead, including the rounding of Cape Horn, which sports some of the roughest waters in the world. Rutherford sailed west, then turned south into the Chukchi Sea. This took him into the Bering Strait, a roughly 50-mile, or 80-kilometer, wide channel that separates Alaska from Russia. And so, through the strait went Rutherford and into the Bering Sea. These are the waters featured in the popular reality show Deadliest Catch, and are famed for their treacherous conditions. And you know what? The Bering Sea would live up to its reputation. Here, Rutherford was hit by some of the fiercest storms of the journey, the boat rocking and tossing like he had never experienced. It was just north of the Aleutian Islands that Rutherford and the St. Brendan were nearly overcome by the elements. In a fierce storm, Rutherford, unbeknownst to himself, entered an area the locals called the Mixmaster. It's where several strong currents converge, and adding in gale force winds, it creates conditions Rutherford described as a washing machine. The storm was ferocious. There were 20-foot-high waves coming in different directions, and that's when the St. Brendan was hit by a rogue wave. A rogue wave is a wave twice as big as those around it. Rutherford said that the noise that the wave generated was like a freight train or a jet engine, and it was like a moving waterfall coming towards St. Brendan. It was so tall, he couldn't see the top of it. The wave hit the side of the St. Brendan, flipping the small boat upside down. Everything not bolted down got tossed onto the boat's ceiling, including Rutherford. Water poured in, soaking everything. Now, one of the dangers of this voyage was taking such a small boat. Rutherford's sailboat was designed more for cruising around a harbor than an ocean voyage. But one thing that the Alban Vega model had going for it was that it was designed for seaworthiness, and that included a lot of ballast in the keel. The keel, by the way, is that fin-like protrusion you see at the bottom of a sailboat. On the Alban Vega, the keel is big and heavy. This means that if the boat is capsized, just like it happened to Rutherford in the Bering Sea, it will automatically flip over again as the weight of the keel pulls it right side up. And the design worked perfectly. St. Brendan righted herself, tossing Rutherford and the contents of his cabin all over the place for a second time. The result of the capsizing was bad, but not voyage ending. Rutherford said he was freaked out by the incident more than anything. Aside from some wiring, the boat was, for the most part, undamaged. Rutherford suffered a knee injury, but nothing serious. The biggest losses in the storm were two electronic devices, Rutherford's phone and e-reader. Both were ruined. This means that in the documentary about Rutherford, Red Dot on the Ocean, There's no video after this point. The loss of his Kindle was a tough one, as reading was one of the chief ways to alleviate the boredom that often held sway. However, Rutherford would dig up an old iPod his sister had given him as a backup device with some music and ten electronic books. Rutherford would thus read all seven volumes of Edward Gibbon's classic Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, one sentence at a time, on the iPod's tiny screen. It was dry reading, but Rutherford was thrilled to have something to occupy the long hours ahead. And so, St. Brendan and Rutherford had survived a potentially deadly encounter and pushed onward. Near Onalaska, which is on one of the Aleutian Islands, Rutherford was greeted by a boat which brought him some fresh gear, plus some pizza and cold beer. He was also interviewed by a reporter, who had to shout the questions to Rutherford from the supply boat. It is only the second contact Rutherford had 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 with another human being since departing Annapolis over 100 days earlier. From the Bering Sea, Rutherford and his sailboat entered the Pacific, a 10,000-mile stretch to the tip of South America ahead of him. This was the longest distance of open water in Rutherford's journey. In some ways, this makes the next third of Rutherford's voyage a little weird to describe, and that's because there's no real physical references to make. I can't say he sailed along the California coast or sighted the Hawaiian Islands or whatever. It's nothing but ocean for nearly 100 days. What I'll do is talk about the challenges and highlights of this leg of the voyage. The first thing I'll mention is the isolation. It was just Rutherford, St. Brendan, and the ocean. Nothing else. As I noted, Rutherford read as much as he could, and there were always storms and difficult weather to deal with. But weeks and months of open water meant that he had to fight the tedium of his environment. Rutherford said the thing he had to do during the voyage was embrace the situation. He said that he tried to put on emotional blinders, avoiding the high highs and the low lows of what he was doing. And for Rutherford, that meant accepting that the ocean was his home, something I found interesting when talking to him. He said that on all of his previous voyages, across the Atlantic, down to the Caribbean, or the Florida Keys, he always had this idea of going places. The ocean was a way to get to those destinations. But not this time. Of it, Rutherford said, quote, When I spent 309 days alone in the ocean, I was no longer a visitor. I was a resident. I lived in the ocean. Land was not my home. The ocean was my home. End quote. Rutherford said that it helped to focus on accomplishments. Each day, he said he set himself a goal, which helped him stay focused. Otherwise, it was a lot of drudgery. A shower was a bucket of salt water. Soap up, another bucket of salt water. For water, there was the manual water maker. This device had to be pumped 1,500 times to make one gallon of fresh water. Rutherford estimated that he pumped the water maker over 400,000 times on his journey. But as I have said before, Rutherford said he had to embrace the situation to survive bemoaning a lack of hot water or fresh food or whatever was not going to change the situation. So live with it, accept it, do your best, move on to the things you can control. The second thing I want to mention is regarding Rutherford's route. He headed south towards the tip of South America, but it's not like he went in a straight line. Remember, this is a sailboat, and you are always, to some extent, at the mercy of the winds and currents. When you reach the equator, you run into the easterly trade winds, This is awesome if you want to go west, towards Asia. These are the winds and currents that have taken explorers and merchants across the Pacific for hundreds of years. But for Rutherford, this meant that he had to sail into these forces. This is called beating into the wind. It was often so strong, the boat was tilted at an angle all the time. In tough winds, Rutherford could only manage to go three or four miles per hour. All of this took a toll on St. Brendan, which we will talk about in a minute. These winds meant that Rutherford's voyage veered out into the Pacific Ocean in a big loop. He ended up so far to the west, he was on the edge of the Pitcairn Islands. That's nearly 3,500 miles, or 5,600 kilometers, from South America. At that point, St. Brendan was actually closer to New Zealand than South America. Now, the good part about this is that if you get far enough south, you can catch the Roaring 40s. These are powerful winds that blow west to east, bringing you towards South America. We saw this on our recent series on James Cook, the British ship zipping along this route from New Zealand to South America. Well, this is exactly what Rutherford experienced once he got far enough south. He caught these westerly winds and rowed them to Cape Horn. However, before we get to Cape Horn, there is one thing I want to mention about the time in the Pacific, and that's regarding the condition of Rutherford's boat, St. Brendan. I alluded to this a few minutes ago. In simple terms, things were falling apart. Little by little, St. Brendan was being chipped away by the elements. Let's face it, the little sailboat was not built for this sort of thing, and so this was inevitable. In the Pacific, the boat's engine died. Rutherford doesn't even know exactly where this happened. He didn't really need the engine in the open ocean, and most of his fuel was gone, but it would have been nice to have had for any emergencies around in Cape Horn or any other situations that might arise. Another item that failed was Rutherford's AIS unit. This was the electronic device that alerted him to nearby freighters. In the Pacific, this wasn't a big deal as ships were basically non-existent. But not having the AIS will become very important once Rutherford gets closer to land. Another issue that arose was when St. Brendan developed a slow leak below the waterline. This was not something Rutherford could fix while at sea. This meant that the boat was slowly sinking as the bilge would fill up with water in less than eight hours. The bilge is the bottom part of the hull. Now, to counter this, Rutherford had two pumps, an automatic one and a manual one. But both of these pumps would fail, forcing Rutherford to manually bail St. Brendan for more than half the voyage. Rutherford had an empty can of corn, the only thing that fit down into the bottom of the boat, which he would use to scoop up water and then dump it into a three-gallon bucket. When that was full, he dumped that into the ocean. And so the journey towards Cape Horn was a long slog. Some days were good, some bad. Some days there were storms. Other days Rutherford got caught in the doldrums, his boat barely moving. Near the equator, the interior of the cabin got unbearably hot. Rutherford ended up suffering from rashes all over his body. Now, as Rutherford approached the tip of South America, he knew that what lay ahead was not going to be easy. Waves and storms converge around Cape Horn in the Chilean archipelago, and the waters between South America and Antarctica are a pinch point where all this bad stuff comes together. Cape Horn, Rutherford said, had, quote, some of the most unbelievably terrible waters that are on planet Earth, end quote. He compared going around Cape Horn to climbing Mount Everest, which he added made doing the Northwest Passage like climbing K2. And so, as Rutherford approached Cape Horn, he held back and waited for ideal conditions to make the passage. On Christmas, he celebrated with canned ham and some Highland Park Scotch whiskey that he had saved, the latter of which he called, quote, incredibly good, end quote. But then Rutherford faced a potentially voyage-ending moment, this time due to an injury. He slipped and fell hard into a wooden protrusion, cracking several ribs. Now, up to this time, he had had many minor and some not-so-minor injuries. But this was different. The pain was intense. The injury threatened to derail the entire voyage. But Rutherford buckled down and prepared for rounding the cape. He said he had two reasons for ending the voyage, catastrophic injury to himself or catastrophic injury to the boat. The broken ribs were not enough of an excuse to give up. He said, quote, Quitting was the worst thing I could possibly think of. It was worse than dying in many ways, because I was so determined to accomplish this. End quote. Knowing what lay ahead, Rutherford called friends and family members on a satellite phone just in case things didn't go well. On day 206 of his voyage, Rutherford got the weather window he wanted and made a move to go around Cape Horn. The passage was not an easy one. The waves at the Cape were as high as 30 feet. But Rutherford had avoided the worst of the storms, and soon he was around the tip of South America and in the Atlantic Ocean. And so, Matt Rutherford had completed the second leg of his remarkable voyage. He had made it through the Northwest Passage, sailed the length of North and South America, and rounded Cape Horn. Now he had to sail North, towards his starting point in the United States. He had been at sea for more than 200 days, and had another 100 or so to go. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? As St. Brendan sailed into the Atlantic, Matt Rutherford celebrated completing the second leg of his journey with a bottle of wine. The wine had been given to Rutherford years earlier by an Englishman. The bottle had been all over the world, Europe, Africa, the Caribbean, and across the Atlantic multiple times. The Englishman had told Rutherford to save it for a special occasion. As Rutherford had just rounded Cape Horn and was now down to drinking only water and coffee, he decided that this qualified as a special occasion. He said that the wine tasted amazing one of the things he missed at this point was anything with taste to it. And so, with Cape Horn rounded, Rutherford was now on the final leg of his journey. And knowing this, it put everything into a fresh perspective, with Rutherford saying, quote, After Cape Horn, after 220 days at sea, in some ways I didn't want to return. I just wanted to stay out in the ocean forever. There's a sense of freedom, this kind of ultimate freedom that you experience when you've been alone at sea for that long. End quote. But frankly, there was no way Rutherford was going to stay in the ocean forever, or even another year. As we talked about earlier, the St. Brendan was falling apart. In addition to the failed engine and AIS unit, two of the boat's GPS units were broken. His navigation lights were out. The boat's mass was going bad, meaning it was starting to compress the deck under it. Plus, the hull was warping, and the boat was taking on too much water. Also, his VHF radio, which he used to communicate with other ships, was broken and Rutherford still had three months at sea ahead of him. Now, Rutherford did not go directly north along the South American coast. Like in the Pacific, he had to work with the winds and currents. This drove him northeast, and he got within 300 miles of South Georgia Island, which is famous as the destination of Ernest Shackleton on his endurance voyage. Shackleton is one of Rutherford's heroes. By the way, the open-water sailing, in some ways, was easier, according to Rutherford. And that's because your navigation doesn't always have to be perfect. If you're off by 20 miles, or even 100, it's not a big deal. And outside of a big storm, the waves don't get you. Rutherford said it's the sharp, pointy things that are the biggest dangers to a small boat, such as rocks and icebergs. And so, north went Rutherford and St. Brendan. It was off French Guiana, which is on the northeast corner of South America, just north of Brazil, that Rutherford had another near disaster. Remember, he had no AIS unit to warn him about other ships. He had no running lights and no radio. It was nighttime, and Rutherford woke to see the lights of a freighter before him. The freighter would not have seen the St. Brennan in the darkness of the ocean, and if they struck the little sailboat, they wouldn't have even realized they had done so. Without an engine, remember that had failed, Rutherford only had his sails to try and avoid being crushed. He said he tried to yell out to the freighter, but there was no way they could hear him. And so Rutherford desperately worked to turn St. Brendan away from the freighter. With only his sails to work with, everything, he said, happened incredibly slowly. And then, as St. Brennan got within about 50 feet of the freighter, the wave created by the ship caused Rutherford's boat to do a 180-degree turn. Thus, he barely avoided the freighter. So, with another disaster dodged, Rutherford pushed north. Around this time, Rutherford was interviewed by David Scheinen for the Washington Post. He did the interview via basic satellite email. Scheinen would write, By now, some 20,000 miles into this audacious odyssey, "...nearly everything on board Matt Rutherford's boat is entirely flat-out busted, rotted through, waterlogged beyond repair, or otherwise reduced to ballast." The fascinating thing was that people outside of the sailing community were beginning to take note of Matt Rutherford. His expedition was bigger than anything he could have imagined, and donations came into crab to support the voyage and the organization. Onward went Rutherford and his battered little boat, past the Caribbean and up the eastern coast of the United States. On day 301, 600 miles from his destination, Rutherford was met by his friend, Simon Edwards. Edwards put some food and batteries into a cooler and floated it over to St. Brendan. It was a shot in the arm for Rutherford, who was tiring badly. Having some human contact rejuvenated him, and he pressed onward. As I noted, Rutherford's voyage had taken on a life of its own. Stories about him were running all over the world. On the floor of the United States Senate, Iowa Senator Tom Harkin acknowledged and praised Rutherford and his journey. And so, as Rutherford moved up the eastern coast of the United States and approached Chesapeake Bay, the main concern now were the winds and currents, as Rutherford had no engine. Chesapeake Bay has a natural flow out of the bay and into the ocean. If the winds don't cooperate, a boat can struggle to enter the bay. On day 308 of his voyage, Rutherford and the St. Brennan approached the mouth of Chesapeake Bay. Here there is a bridge tunnel that spans the width of the bay, more than 17 miles. For Rutherford, the bridge was technically his finish line. Once he passed the bridge, he had accomplished what he had set out to do. Rutherford got to within a few miles of the bridge. He could even see it. The finish line was in sight. And then, the winds died, and the tide began to push him back out to sea. Now, I want to remind everyone that St. Brendan had a satellite beacon attached to her, so anyone who looked at the website tracking Rutherford knew exactly where he was. One boat came out to meet Rutherford, and he had to wave them off. He couldn't attach himself to another boat or have someone come on board although they did toss him a sandwich and a six-pack of PBR. Rutherford said it was a crappy gas station-quality sandwich, but it was the greatest thing he had ever had. Even the PBR was good. St. Brendan was pushed 16 miles, or 26 kilometers, away from the entrance to Chesapeake Bay. And even more distressing, it was pulled along the coast near Virginia Beach. In the dark that night, Rutherford could hear the waves breaking on the beach. The tides were threatening to drag him ashore. Another reminder, Rutherford could not beach his boat or drop anchor, and thus he fought the entire night to keep the tide from pulling him ashore. After more than 300 days at sea, Rutherford was worried he would end up shipwrecked on a beach a handful of miles away from accomplishing his mission. But the next day, the gods of the sea decided to grant Rutherford good weather, including favorable winds, and so that morning he triumphantly sailed into Chesapeake Bay and took aim for Annapolis. And thus, Matt Rutherford had done it. He had become the first person to accomplish a solo, non-stop circumnavigation of the Americas. As St. Brennan headed up Chesapeake Bay, dozens of other boats joined him on his voyage north. Planes flew overhead, with messages of welcome trailing behind them. Now, while Matt Rutherford had technically concluded his mission, this had become far bigger than just him. It was requested that he dock in Annapolis the next day at noon, and thus he dropped anchor off the docks of Annapolis and tried to get some sleep, which was hard in the excitement of it all. And sleep became impossible when he was found by some friends at 1 a.m. You have to remember that he still had the satellite beacon on his boat. He proceeded to celebrate all night. And so, on April 21st, after 310 days at sea, Matt Rutherford and St. Brendan pulled up to a dock in Annapolis to the cheers of friends, family, and thousands of supporters. It was very different than when he had departed, when a single person had seen him off. Rutherford, barefoot and bedraggled looking in shorts, a t-shirt and floppy hat, and not a lot of sleep, stepped onto the dock, thus completing his epic non-stop solo circumnavigation of the Americas. Matt hugged his mother first, and then there were speeches and cheers. The governor of Maryland was there to honor Rutherford's accomplishments. What followed next was a whirlwind. His first meal was ribs, which he said he barely tasted in the craziness of the moment, but they were awesome. Otherwise, he enjoyed meeting with family and friends. He celebrated with some scotch whiskey and more food. To have so many kinds of food available after freeze-dried mush for a year was an amazing treat. But the thing Rutherford said struck him most was having running water. After hand-pumping his water maker 1,500 times a day for 300 plus days, he said that the first time he came upon a water faucet, he stood and turned the water on and off for several minutes. And to actually get a hot shower was indescribable. The first night back, Rutherford said that he sat on the floor of his shower for an hour and literally soaked it all in. After the fancy welcome, there was a quick trip to New York, where Rutherford appeared on the Al Roker show. He said New York was overwhelming because there were so many people. He had spent almost a year alone, and to suddenly find himself amid thousands of men and women was supremely weird. And so, Matt Rutherford was home. He had done it. The first ever solo non-stop circumnavigation of the Americas. He had traveled non-stop 27,077 miles, or 43,576 kilometers. Also, he had set the record for the smallest boat to ever negotiate the Northwest Passage, a record he still holds. And we can't forget about Rutherford's original goal. He had wanted to raise money for the nonprofit Chesapeake Region Accessible Boating, a.k.a. CRAB. Well, because of Rutherford's efforts, CRAB took in $120,000 in donations. This was huge for them. The money, by the way, would be critical to making CRAB a world-class organization that provides unique sailing opportunities to the disabled. He told me that Crabb recently put in a fully handicapped accessible marina, the first in the nation. Rutherford is immensely proud of the work he did with Crabb and the role he played in helping them expand and survive as an entity. And so Matt Rutherford was home. He had accomplished something amazing, something that would have made his heroes, Shackleton, Amundsen, Crean, Knox Johnson, proud. He had pushed himself mentally and physically and triumphed. But what was next for Rutherford? When he stepped out onto the docks at Annapolis at the end of his voyage, he had $30 in his pocket. He had no bank account, no savings, no credit card. What would he do next? To that, Rutherford went back to three goals he had set up for himself when he was 19 years old. One was to go to Southeast Asia alone, which he had done riding a bike across the region. The second was to captain a boat across the Atlantic. There's another check mark. And the third goal he had was to start a nonprofit to help make the world a better place. And that had been on his mind, as he had had lots of time to think about it while alone on the ocean for nearly a year. And thus, Rutherford established the Ocean Research Project, which is dedicated to the scientific exploration under sail in pursuit of the knowledge necessary to better understand the problems facing our oceans. Now, because of what Rutherford had done, that did not mean that people were willing to give him money for his ideas. Far from it. Using sailboats for scientific research was not the norm. But for Rutherford, he saw a special opportunity. A sailboat can be operated at a fraction of the cost of a big, fancy research vessel, and with minimal environmental impact. These big research ships can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars a day just to operate. The United States Polar Research Ship, Skooliak, consumes 2,000 gallons of diesel fuel a day. Technology to do scientific research, Rutherford told me, has gotten smaller, and a sailboat can be a legitimate professional data collection platform at a fraction of the cost, and with a fraction of the environmental impact. And a sailboat can often go places these bigger ships cannot. And so, over the past decade, Rutherford has fought to make his vision a reality. He has led several expeditions into the Arctic and the Atlantic. His people have mapped 2,500 miles of uncharted area, doing work with organizations such as NASA and the Smithsonian Institute. They map the eastern part of the Atlantic gyre. A gyre is a slow, massive circular ocean current. There are five in the world. They are frequently centers of high-pressure systems. That means they often lack movement and create the dreaded doltrum effect. For the environment, these gyres become big garbage patches, so mapping them and understanding them is important to the health of the ocean. The last decade at the Ocean Research Project has had many ups and downs. In 2018, the organization launched a new research boat, the 65-foot Bruce Roberts. As always, Rutherford did a lot of the work on the boat himself. It sports half a million dollars of scientific equipment, and in 2022, Rutherford sailed her and a team of scientists to Greenland, where they did 3D mapping of uncharted areas. Rutherford's dream is to build a fleet of research-ready sailboats. He would like to have multiple boats working in multiple locations. Nothing like this exists. And with that in mind, let's not forget what Rutherford said about his ideas. He tends to get an idea, get comfortable with the idea, then expand on the idea until it can't be expanded any further so who knows what he ultimately will do. No matter, Rutherford loves what he is doing, even if he hasn't drawn a salary from the organization in more than 10 years. Of the Ocean Research Project, he said, quote, This organization I've created gives me the ability to fulfill that need for adventure and exploration that's ingrained in my bone marrow, but do it in a way where I feel like I'm giving back to the ocean and doing something helpful for humanity. End quote. Rutherford's organization has done and continues to do some wonderful things. If you want to learn more about the organization, go to their website, oceanresearchproject.org. I put a link on our website and in the show notes. Also, take a listen to our next episode, which is an interview with Matt Rutherford. We go into depth about Rutherford's years after his circumnavigation of the Americas and the work of his nonprofit. And the conversation isn't just a sales pitch. He's got great stories. A four-day voyage turning into 24 days after being caught in the Atlantic doldrums. Hurricane-level winds in the Arctic sailing across the Pacific in a 29-foot-long sailboat that he built in just 23 days. It's great stuff, so please check it out. In our conversations, we also talked a lot about the mindset of someone like himself, and I want to share some of those comments before we wrap up. First, I asked Rutherford about the attraction of the ocean and sailing, and he pointed out that the ocean is like the ultimate wilderness. You get such extreme conditions, it's amazing and terrifying, and he loves to explore, and the outdoors, and the challenge. Of the ocean, he said, quote, it's an area we are not supposed to exist, end quote. A second question I had for Rutherford surrounded the mental makeup of himself. How had that affected him while at sea and on land? The answers were interesting. He said flat out, quote, I definitely struggle with life on land, end quote. And he said that most of the time on land, he is just trying to get back out to the ocean. Because, let's face it, trying to recreate the experience of the ocean on land is not easy. This is not uncommon for people who do long-distance, single-handed sailing. They get records and acknowledgement, even money, yet they keep going back out over and over. He said that he thinks people like him are just wired a bit differently, which can be a strength and a weakness. Of it all, Rutherford said he will do it until he dies. He loves it. This includes his non-profit. His dreams for it are endless, so his journeys will never cease. Another thing I asked Rutherford about was the fact that his name will, forever, be associated with a record. Not many people can say that. His response was, quote, I created a record. I didn't break a record. I created one. It's humbling, really. So much of the history of exploration is failure. If you look at all these guys who tried to be the first to do this or that, most of them did not succeed. So I feel very fortunate that I was able to succeed in this because the odds weren't necessarily in my favor doing that trip. So it's really an honor. It's bizarre. It's kind of out of body in some ways to think that I will always be the first person to have circumnavigated the Americas no matter what happens. End quote. The third thing I talked about with Rutherford was his own life. What is it like? He said he doesn't have or need a lot of creature comforts. He has three hobbies he has a motorcycle, collects vinyl records, and first edition books from famous explorers and adventurers. However, he said that life on land can be lonely. As we talked about a moment ago, he said that he just doesn't fit into normal society in a lot of ways. And relationships are difficult. Of it, he said, quote, I was alone in the ocean for 309 days going around the Americas. That's an awful long time to be alone. But loneliness in the ocean is different than loneliness on land. On land, you're surrounded by people, so it's an emotional version of loneliness. End quote. With regards to his work, he never imagined he would spend so much time chasing funding. But that's a big part of what he does. And as he gets older, he said that he thinks more about the future, wondering about things such as health insurance and financial security. But as I said earlier, Rutherford has goals for the future, and he will chase those goals until he dies. The last thing I asked Matt Rutherford were for any thoughts about his life and his voyage. He had two comments for me. First, he noted that by age 16, he had been in jail five times and rehab twice. But he stressed that you can't force change. He had had to want to make a change, and it was a slow process. It's not like it happened all at once. Second, he said he has always had goals. Goals, he said, should be part of our lives. And he added, your goals should scare you a bit. He said that if a person looks at him like he's a bit crazy after telling them a goal, he knows he's on the right track. But goals give you focus. Goals get you to an end point. Rutherford made goals when he was 19, goals many thought would have been possible. And he made goals in the middle of the ocean, which gave Rutherford a framework to survive and move forward each day and he continues to dream and create goals, which, as he said, he'll keep striving for until he dies. So that is it, the story of Matt Rutherford and the first solo non-stop circumnavigation of the Americas. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we will have an extensive interview with Rutherford. I can't thank him enough for all the time and enthusiasm he gave to me. The interview, by the way, is a freewheeling affair, with Rutherford talking about his life, the circumnavigation, his efforts with the Ocean Research Project, and a lot more. It's great stuff, so please join us. If you want to know more about Matt Rutherford and his story, there are several sources available. First, you can watch a documentary about Rutherford's voyage called Red Dot in the Ocean. You can rent, buy, or stream the film in various services. It is a great way to get more of an on-the-ground feel for what Rutherford went through. Second, you can visit solotheamericas.com, a site dedicated to his voyage. Third, go to oceanresearchproject.org to learn more about the work done by the nonprofit started by Rutherford. The site provides links to the organization's YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram pages. Fourth, another fun option is Matt's podcast, the Single Handed Sailing Podcast, where Rutherford tells sailing stories. Warning, it's not family friendly, but it's very enjoyable. And fifth, Rutherford has been working on a book, so let's hope we see that in the near future. If you are interested in helping out Matt Rutherford, you can go to the Ocean Research Project's website and donate, or you can become a patron of his podcast. I will wrap up by just saying that it's been really fun to do this story. It was so unique to actually talk to my subject and really get an insight as to why they do what they do. It's really an extraordinary thing to make the leap from "Wouldn't it be cool to do this or that or whatever and actually doing it. And you can see that people like Matt Rutherford have a personality and an obsession that literally compels them to attempt things most of us find crazy, such as circumnavigating the Americas. In some ways, it helps me understand why I sit in the basement of my home in the middle of Wisconsin and read and write and tell these stories, as opposed to hopping on a boat and trying to sail around the world or climb Mount Everest. Anyhow, it has been special. So that is it for today. Join us next time for my conversation with Matt Rutherford. He talks about so many things that I was not able to cover in my narrative, so it's a great time and really informative. Thanks again for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows, such as The History of China and Fork in the Road. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast.